0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a talk from Jim Jordan on partying with Solomon, which takes a look at the book of Ecclesiastes and how we can eat, drink, and be merry in the times we find ourselves in. We really hope that you are encouraged by this time of teaching. And here is Jim Jordan discussing the book of Ecclesiastes and partying with Solomon.
1: I'd like for us to consider this morning of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I wonder if you would turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes 8. And I'll read as our text, verses 14 to 17. There is something meaningless that's done on the earth, that is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is meaningless, futile, vanity. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his labors. Throughout the days of his life, that God has given him under the sun. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task that's been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work that's been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Now, this is the Word of God. And the Word of God here says in verse 15, I recommended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will stand by him in the midst of all the labor and pain and toil that God has allotted to him under the sun in this life. Now, my question for you this morning is, do you believe that? you believe the Bible says to eat, drink, and be merry? Well, before we answer that question, let's look at what else Solomon has to say here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I know there are scholars who think that Solomon didn't write Ecclesiastes, but as we'll see, it was written by the son of David who was king in Jerusalem, and I don't know who else that would be. Uh, and I don't really see any reason to question that Solomon wrote this. You know, in Germany for several centuries scholars have made names for themselves and gotten appointments to universities by coming up with new things. They're like the Athenians in Acts 17. They're always coming up with something new. And so if there's any way you can call something in the Bible into question, then you do so, and then you become a professor at some German university, and then you're read by Americans who are so awed by German scholarship that they think that it couldn't possibly be wrong. But My Bible says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And it sure sounds like Solomon to me. And it did for all the centuries of the church until recent years. So I believe that, and you don't have to, but you should. (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 24 of Ecclesiastes says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good, This also I have seen, that it's from the hand of God. There is nothing better than to eat and drink and tell yourself that your work is good. You may have to do that. You may not think that you're amounting to much of anything. But there is nothing better than to eat and drink and tell yourself that you do count for something and your work is good. And that's a gift of God, That's what it says. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 say, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks and sees good in all his labor, that's a gift of God. Eat and drink. None of this anorexic stuff. (laughs) Then chapter 5, verse 18 says, Here is what I have seen to be good and proper, good and beautiful, to eat, drink, and enjoy oneself in one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life that God has given him, for this is his reward. You know what's good? Eating and drinking is good. And enjoying your work. That's a gift of God, to enjoy your work. During the few years of life that God has given you on this earth. Chapter 9, 7, and 8. Go then... Eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Well, I don't know that we have to take that literally, but you get the idea. Eat and drink. Now, if that seems strange to you, there's a good reason why it may seem strange to you. Because you're probably more familiar with Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. So let's turn there and see what Jesus says. Jesus refers back to Ecclesiastes, but with a twist. And you've heard this before, and if you have misgivings about all this eat, drink, and be merry stuff, here's why. Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began to reason to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? He said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man said, eat, drink, and be merry, and God called him a fool. But so maybe it's a bad thing to have this eat, drink, and be merry attitude on life. Isn't it the height of irresponsibility to have an eat, drink, and be merry attitude on life? Isn't it something that we should be suspicious of? No, not really. You see, the evil in Luke 12, 16 to 21 is the evil of presuming on the future. It's a matter of when and how you eat, drink, and are merry. There are two different contexts in life, and I want us to think for just a few minutes here about those two different contexts. Because Ecclesiastes draws the contrast in the sharpest possible way. And sometimes in your life and mine, God will draw the contrast in the sharpest possible way. You see, the first context to eat, drink, and be merry is in the context of my works. The other context is in the context of total faith. The man in Luke chapter 12 eats, drinks, and is merry in the context of his works. He believes he controls the future. He believes that he understands everything he needs to know. He understands the weather patterns, and so he knows that his crops are going to continue to get bigger and bigger, because he can plan, so he can build another barn. He understands medicine. He understands vitamins and herbs. Okay, He's taking his multis every day. And uh, he's taking his biochemical cell salts and all the other things he's supposed to take. And he's eating right. Fish five times a week. Red meat only once every six months. Lots of veggies. No oil. Whatever. He's doing all the things right, so he knows he's going to live for another 20 years. He can count on it. And he is in control. He understands He's got money, he's in control, he's made a place for himself, and now he can relax, eat, drink, and be merry, because he's in control. The book of Ecclesiastes says exactly the opposite. It says you do not understand the world, you do not control the world, every time you think you've got it figured out, God broadsides you, and when you look at the world carefully, it makes no sense. That's what Ecclesiastes says. Some of you seem to know something about this. (laughs) So how in the world can you eat, drink, and be merry? The only way is because God is in control. God knows everything. God is in control. And because of that reason, you can relax, kick your shoes off, and eat, drink, and be merry. See, that's totally different from whether you're in control, a context of works where you have earned the right to give yourself... Food and wine and rest. In a context where you're not in control, and you're afraid, but God gives you bread and wine and rest. That's Ecclesiastes. Let's look at what Ecclesiastes has to say. He doesn't spare us. And sometimes in this life, God doesn't spare us. We need to take a hard look at reality. You know, there's a difference. There's two books of wisdom here side by side in the Bible, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. The message of Proverbs is that if you look at life, you can figure it out, enough to live by. You can be wise, avoid fools, avoid contentious people, be like the ant, lay things up for the future, be industrious, all these things, and then you'll prosper and your children will rise up and they'll prosper, stay away from bad people, don't hang around with them, do this, do that. And you can pretty much count on things working out well for you in this world because God is a predictable God who keeps the covenant and honors those who honor him. And that's true. But Ecclesiastes says, you can't figure out what's going on in this world. You try to do things and they don't work out. It doesn't look as if God honors the covenant at all. You've done right, and you're suffering. The other guys over here are doing evil, and they're being prospered. The more you look at it, the more meaningless it seems. You're just going to have to trust God. Now, these two books need to be taken together. As Americans, we like Proverbs better. You see, we are, uh, we're technological civilization. We're Protestants. And we believe the world can be figured out, and there's a lot of truth to that, and so Proverbs is our book. Ecclesiastes is not so much our book, but Ecclesiastes is right there next to Proverbs, and it's the other side of the coin, and that's what we're going to spend today. Ecclesiastes 1 verses 3 to 11. Listen to this. Ecclesiastes 1 3 to 11. What advantage does man have in all of his work that he does under the sun? A generation comes, a generation goes, the earth keeps on going. The sun rises, the sun sets, hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south and turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are tiresome. Man is not able to figure it out. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. That which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything that you can say, look, this is new? Huh. It's already existed for ages that were before us. There is no remembrance of these earlier things. That's why it seems new. Also, of the later things that will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who come even later. You think it's new? You think you've discovered some new truth out of the Bible and you're reading along? Wow! And did you discover it was already in those old commentaries. Matthew Henry saw it. Spurgeon saw it. It's not new at all. That's not really the main thing here. He says that life under the sun doesn't seem to have a lot of meaning. History doesn't make much sense. Work makes no sense. It looks as if the world just continues to repeat the same patterns forever and ever without any change. Two things we need to think about here for a minute. First of all, this expression, under the sun. Some of us have the impression that the book of Ecclesiastes is saying, well, if you look at the world from a pagan viewpoint, under the sun, without Christ, apart from God, the world makes no sense. But, of course, if you have God and Christ and the world makes sense, and none of this really counts. Well, that's just not good enough. You see, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God created the sun and God put the sun up in the firmament and he made the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. God put the sun up there to rule the day. It's his sun. Psalm 19 says that God put the tabernacle in the heavens for the sun. The sun runs through it like a bridegroom hastening to his wife. As a chariot flying through the sky, God made this. It's his world, and if it's under the sun, it means it's under heaven, and it's under the perspective of divine light. And what Solomon is saying, and you mustn't try to run away from this, is that even under the sun, with God's light shining on it, the world doesn't seem to make much sense sometimes. Now look, Solomon knows that it's not really totally true that there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon knew that God had made a new covenant with David that was new. And he knows that someday the Messiah is going to come and usher in a new kingdom, and that will be new. It's true. Solomon knows that it's not completely true that everything just continues on and on. But within the horizon of the discourse of Ecclesiastes, okay, he says a lot of times that's how it looks, and that's how it feels. And we're going to deal with that reality. A lot of times it looks as if there really is no new thing under the sun. Even under the firmament that God has set up, we can't understand life. Now, the Bible helps us some. The more you know the Bible, the more you'll understand. For there will always be things you won't. The longer you live as a Christian, the more your senses are exercised to discern good and evil, the more you'll understand, the more wisdom you'll have. But there will be so much you won't. And that's true under the sun. That's true because we're creatures. True because we're still babies. Several octillion years from now, you'll understand more than you do now. But right now, we're all babies. We're only beginning our lives. Very much that we don't understand. And sometimes it's very painful, as Solomon says. Verses 14 to 18 of chapter 1, he says, I have seen all the works that have been done under the sun, under the firmament. And behold, all is vanity, meaninglessness, striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom, more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge." And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly and I realized that this is also striving after wind because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. And what does that mean? He says what's crooked cannot be straightened and what's lacking cannot be counted. Well, you can straighten out some things, but have you ever noticed how many situations in life you can try to get them straightened out and after a while they're back the way they were? You know, you say, I'm going to get up and I'm going to have devotions every day. And that lasts for about four days. And then things are back the way they were. Or you're counseling somebody with a difficulty. And you get it straightened out. And then it's back the way it was before. Primarily all Ecclesiastes here is talking about human conditions. Get your garden all weeded out and in a few weeks. You've got to weed it again. What is... Crooked doesn't seem to be straightenable. What is lacking cannot be counted. You think of all the things that are needed by our civilization, you'll never stop counting. But then he says, in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. You know, there are all kinds of things about the people sitting in this room that you're glad you don't know. Because if you did, you'd be really depressed. The more you understand human nature, the more depressing it becomes. Increasing wisdom is increasing grief. Increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Solomon says, I wish I had never started into this wisdom stuff to understand people and what they're like, because it is painful. And that's true. That's why you don't want to be an elder. Okay, it's why you don't want to be an elder unless you're older and you've got some experience because in knowing a lot about people results in knowing a lot of grief. You have a lot of suffering and a lot of mess in this life. Well, he goes on in chapter 2, verses 18 to 24, and he says, Thus I hated, this is two eighteen. I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun, under the firmament, for I must leave it to the man who comes after me, and who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool, yet he'll have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I've labored by acting wisely under the firmament. This too is meaningless. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored, this word labor keeps showing up. You know, it's hard. A man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he gives his legacy to one who has not labored for him, This, too, is meaningless, and it's a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because in all his days his task is painful and grievous, even at night his mind doesn't rest. This, too, is vanity. In other words, you work, you build something up, and it's inherited by people who didn't work for it and don't appreciate it. And it all gets torn down. Okay, What do you get? You work, it's painful and grievous. Even at night you worry about it. Then he says, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself his labor is good. Tell himself his labor is good. How many of you on the job as a homemaker, as a teacher, as working in a mill or a factory, whatever you do, How many of you feel like it's a treadmill and you're getting nowhere? How many of you have a low self-image about your job? How many of you are frustrated? How many of you can get into what Solomon says here when he says, I hated my work. I hated my life. All my days, my task is painful and grievous. It never seems to get anywhere. You know, our nature is such that if 20 people praise us and one person criticizes us, what do you remember? The one person who criticized. How many of you have a low self-image about your work? Nowadays, the thing is to blame it. The men's movement says it's the feminists who make us men feel bad. The homemakers say it's the feminists who make us homemakers feel bad because we're staying at home and raising children instead of going out and getting jobs. Women who work in the marketplace say it's all these Mary Pride homemaker types who make us feel bad. No, it isn't. It's that no matter what you do in life, it starts feeling futile and meaningless after a while. And it's not somebody else's fault. It's the way things are. It's because of our hearts and because of the treadmill of labor that God has put in the world under the curse. Our labor is under a curse, and you're not going to escape that. And Solomon says it's going to feel totally empty and meaningless. And so he says... Tell yourself your labor is good. Psych yourself up. How can you do that? I mean, is this just cybernetics or something here? You know, is it just something that's in the psychology department here? No. It's because, despite appearances, our work counts for something, and we have to work by faith. Eat, drink, and work by faith. That's what it says. It is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? That's the reality. Chapter 3 verses 9 to 13. Chapter 3 verses 9 to 13. What profit is there to the worker from that which he toils? Let me read that again. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task that God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work that God has done from the beginning even to the end. Oh, this makes God sadistic almost. God has put eternity into your heart. He has made you the image of God. So you have something down inside of you that wants to understand everything. You can't help that. Eternity is in your heart. You are God's image. You are the walking image of God on this earth. Whatever that means. It's an amazing and infinite idea and you cannot help but want to understand. And God has made it so that you can't understand because it's too much men will not find out what God has done from the beginning even to the end now I think if we hadn't sinned we would live with that we would say well as the years go by we'll learn more and more and we could relax and the eternity in our heart would make us want to know more and we would know more and this would be a pleasurable experience but as it is because of sin it's frustrating We want to know, we want to understand, we want to know what's going to happen in the future. We want to be able to plan for our children. We want to be able to plan for our old age. We want not to have to be afraid about all these things. And maybe right now you're not afraid, but if you're sick, you know, when you're 12 years old and you get sick, it's one thing, but when you're 42 and you get sick, you begin to worry. And when you're 62 and you're getting sick, you worry a lot. Then you realize how much you want life. How much you want understanding. And you're not going to get a whole lot of it. And that frustration and tension is there. We are the things in this universe that have eternity in our hearts. Amazing. But we will not understand it. And that will frustrate us. And so he says in the next verse there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor and it's a gift from God. Now this goes a little beyond it. We said a moment ago that we have to tell ourselves that our labor is good. But it says here that the man who eats and drinks begins to see good in his labor. And I don't know quite how that works. But Solomon says, and under divine inspiration, that it's true. The man who eats and drinks, sees good in his labor. Now, we're going to have to figure out what this eating and drinking is. You are looking at it right here. Solomon has something very particular in mind, as well as something general. Chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. Listen to this, he says, There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. That's really what Jesus was talking about in his parable. Riches hoarded by the owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, there was nothing to support him. As he came naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind throughout his life? Indeed, he eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. you ever know anything about vexation, sickness, and anger? Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, drink, and enjoy oneself in one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of this life that God has given him, for this is his reward. In the midst of the meaninglessness and labor of life, you can eat, drink, and be merry. About a month ago, I got back from speaking in Portland, Oregon. My wife met me at the airport, and she looked very upset. And I said, what happened? And she told me that the husband of her closest friend back in Tyler had dropped dead of a heart attack, one of my closest friends, that morning. He was 42. He was dead before he hit the ground. So we just packed the car and went back. This man had had a very difficult life and had finally gotten... A job that had a lot of future to it. He had finally gotten out of a bad church situation and was very happy for the first time in about eight years. And suddenly he died. Things like this happen all the time. You bring a child up, 17, 18, suddenly he's killed. These things happen. And what do you do in the middle of that? Bible says you can eat drink and be merry that's a gift and it contradicts the way the rest of life looks so much of the time Then he says and this will be the last passage we'll look at here before I preach on it a little bit <laughs> don't get your hopes up I've still got 20 minutes Ecclesiastes 8:14 to 17 this is the passage we read to start with says, uh, here it is again, there is a meaningless thing that's done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And this is meaningless. It's futile. It shouldn't be this way. It's not what Proverbs says. Proverbs tells us that if you live right, you prosper, and if you live wrong, you suffer. But he says, This It's not the way it always comes out. In fact, very often it doesn't seem to come out that way. And as you look around the world, more often than not, it looks sometimes as if it's not going the way it's supposed to go. And this is empty and futile. So he says, well, when you see this happen, eat, drink, and be merry. Because there's nothing better in this life. Nothing better? Better than a new car? Better than having six healthy children? Better than getting married? Better than having a million dollars? There is nothing better than to eat, drink, and be married? We'll come back to that. Because he says one more thing. He says, I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task that's done on the earth, even though I would work on it day and night. If you would spend, and never sleep day or night, and think about what's done on the earth, and see every work of God, you conclude, man cannot discover the work that's done of the sun. Even though a man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And a wise man should say, well, I know. fact is, he cannot find it out. You cannot uncover how this world works. Now, people think they have. But if you keep up with modern physics, you know that they keep finding out that they don't. There's always something new, science of chaos and other things. Many of you read The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Did anyone read that? His theme in that book is that there are a lot of things you can but you cannot figure the whole thing out. Eco is a practicing Roman Catholic who goes to Mass every morning. He writes as a Christian, and that's very apparent in his second novel, Foucault's Pendulum, which is an attack on modern what's called deconstructionism, the attempt to say that life is meaningless. And he shows where that leads. It leads into the demonic realm. But in his first book, The Name of the Rose, you have uh, Sherlock Holmes' character, William of Baskerville. Baskerville there means Sherlock Holmes. And he's trying to discover this series of murders. And he does remarkable things. He discovers a lot about each of these murders that's taking place in this monastery. But he never figures out the whole thing until it's too late. And the novel has as its theme that the mind of man... Is remarkable, but not omniscient. And that's what's happening here. It's a very good novelization of this theme. You will not discover. There's much you will learn, but you will not discover the whole picture. The reality of life is suffering. The reality of life is that our works decay. You plant a garden, you weed it up, you get your seeds in, and the next year when you go out, it's all weeds again. Cause and effect, we cannot trace it out. Life seems senseless. There's a lot of suffering. There is a lot of pain. And the wonderful thing about the Bible is that the Bible talks about this even though we don't. The Psalms in particular talk about it. Let me read you one psalm. Uh, this idea of pain and meaninglessness and suffering in life that you do know about, don't you? It's in the Psalms, not so much in our hymns. This is Psalm 88. This is a psalm that's very much like Ecclesiastes. This is a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. Not somebody we know a lot about. O Lord, Yahweh, God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee. Incline Thine ear to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles, and my life is drawn near to the pit. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom thou dost remember no more, and they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Thy wrath is rested upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy ways. Now this is a believer who feels abandoned by God. He's been broadsided by the circumstances of life. When he least expected it, a horrible thing happened. And we hear stories, you know, about people who something horrible happens in their life. A child is killed or something, and they pray to God, and God is there and takes them in his arms. But, you know, sometimes God doesn't do that. Sometimes God puts you through what the medieval Christians called a dark night of the soul, or what our Puritan forefathers called a desertion. Sometimes God stays away for a while, and we're not used to that. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? For a long time? For weeks? God does that to make us desperate. God does that because He's doing depth surgery on our souls, and we are so complex that we can't even know what needs to be done, so He does stuff way down inside where we can't see it, And some of that agony, when we come out of it, we will be different people from what we were before. But it's no fun while you're going through it. This man is going through it. Thou hast removed my acquaintances far from me. Thou hast made me an object of loathing to them. I'm shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I've called upon thee every day, Yahweh. I've spread my hands to thee. Wilt thou perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise thee? Will thy loving kindness be declared in the grave, thy faithfulness in the place of destruction? Will thy wonders be made known in the darkness, and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He's arguing with God, but God doesn't answer him here. But I, Yahweh, a covenant-keeping God, I've cried out to thee for help. In the morning my prayer comes before thee. O oh Lord, why dost thou reject my soul? Why dost thou hide thy face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. This has gone on for a long time for this man. I suffer thy terrors. I'm overcome. Thy burning anger has passed over me. Thy terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me altogether. Thou hast removed lover and friend from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. My acquaintances are the darkness. And that's where it ends. (laughs) That's where the psalm ends. Now, we know that that describes what Jesus went through on the cross. But the fact is, we're supposed to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus didn't suffer so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus suffered so that you would be able to. We won't suffer the way he did, but we will be given the privilege of participating in the cross. And this man describes a situation here where he's been broadsided by life. And life makes no sense. And sometimes that's true of us. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You see, we get up into age, we get out of college, and we get on up a few years, and we discover that God has more things to do to us than we thought he was going to do. But you know, in the midst of it all, in the midst of all the suffering of life, in the midst of the meaninglessness of life, God has given us nothing better than to eat, drink, and be merry. It's better than a new job. It's better than a new car. It's better than a new child. It's better than money. And it's better than health. Now, do you believe that? That's what he says over and over again, that there's nothing better. Well, what does he mean? He means that in the midst of life, God has given us a day of rest. In the midst of our labors and toils, he's given us a day of rest. We would never take one. You see, if you believe that you have to build a barn, and you have to fill the barn, and you have to provide for yourself, you will never dare take any time off. You ever get into that mode of thinking? I think we all think this way most of the time. That's why we have to be commanded to take a day off. as we think, gee, if I don't stay on top of this, I won't be able to provide for my family. If I don't go into the office on Sunday afternoon and do this, that, and the other, I won't be able to... I won't have enough to do this, that, or the other. My kids will be disappointed. We won't be able to go to Disney World or whatever. We want to have control. And we never rest. And it tears us up. You do this year after year, and you'll waste away. God says in the midst of life, He gives us the gift of rest. And in the midst of our labor, He gives us time to eat, drink, and be merry. You see, Ecclesiastes is talking primarily about what we're here to do today. By eat and drink, he means bread and wine. He also means steak. Okay? He also means donuts. He doesn't mean Brussels sprouts. I tell you what, you look in Genesis 1, there's nothing about Brussels sprouts. Well, actually, Brussels sprouts are okay. But Solomon is referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 26. And I'll start in verse 22. Through Moses, God says, You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. And you shall eat in the presence... Of Yahweh, your God, at the place where He chooses to establish His name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and your flock, in order that you may learn to fear Yahweh, your God, at all times. And if the distance is so great for you that you're not able to bring the tithe, since the place Yahweh, your God, chooses to set His name, is too far away from you when Yahweh, your God, blesses you. It's too far away. Then you will exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and you may spend the money for whatever you want for oxen sheep wine or strong drink strong drink means beer they didn't have distilled spirits in the ancient world they had fermented spirits called wine you could ferment apples or dandelions or grapes or whatever and you can make wine and you could brew and that made beer, and that's really what this means here. This doesn't sound very spiritual to translate it, wine or beer, so we say wine or strong drink. You can spend it on those things, or whatever your heart desires, and you will eat in the presence of the Lord your God and make merry you and your household. Now, when Solomon says there's nothing better in life than to eat, drink, and make merry, it means with Jesus. It doesn't mean on your own. It means that gift of rest that comes in the midst of labor, where God has given it to you. And that's why it's possible to say that eating and drinking and being married is better than anything else in life. This is the best thing there is, to come in here and eat, drink, and be married. Even though it may seem to contradict what your life experience is like right now. Your life experience outside of here may be something close to hell. Ecclesiastes says it often is. A mental hell where you can't figure it out an emotional hell where you've been broadsided by some of the horrors of life. But in here, take time out, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what he says. Eat means eat. Drink means drink. Enjoy means enjoy it. Ancient Israel, God was so concerned about this that he made wine one of their greatest cultures. Israel practically made the wine for the ancient world. If you don't wish to drink wine and prefer grape juice, that's fine with me. But understanding the Bible that that relaxing aspect is there in what they were drinking. Eat, drink, and be merry. Relaxing. The bottom line, in the midst of life, there's the gift of worship. Being merry, I think, in the Bible, and let me say this since I was going to talk about worship a little bit with you, and I'll close with this, and this will be a challenge to you. Because I think you already eat and drink and be merry here to a great extent. Being Mary in the Bible means primarily to sing God's own words. And there was a time, century and a half ago, and before that, when the church mainly sang scripture songs, that is the Psalms, whole psalms. Because the Psalms were designed for the human consciousness by God who understands us better than we understand ourselves. What we do nowadays is we sing hymns that we ourselves have written, and that's fine. But unfortunately, we don't sing the psalms that God wrote, and that means our hymns tend to get soft. Or we'll take a phrase or two out of the psalms and sing it, but we won't sing the whole psalm. Of course, we pick the phrases we like. (laughs) And we don't pick the ones that talk about pain and suffering or about smushing the head of the enemy or these other things. But you know, for a well-balanced diet, we need all 150. And we need to have them written on our hearts. Ephesians. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You can't do that unless you know them. You can't sprinkle your conversation with them unless you know them. Making melody in your heart. You know, the attitude of our reformers was not of Luther and Calvin, those old guys, you know, old dead dudes from the Reformation. Their attitude was not to say the psalms or even to read them, but to sing them. Luther's attitude was, why say it when you can sing it? In Luther's church, they sang the Nicene Creed, and they sang the Apostles' Creed, they sang the Ten Commandments, they sang the Lord's Prayer, they sang psalms. Calvin had the same attitude. They sang the Creed, they sang the Ten Commandments, they sang the Lord's Prayer. They sang everything they could sing. You see, if you're in love, you go around singing a lot. Those of you that are married might think back to the days when you were courting and when you were in love, you see, and how you used to go around humming and whistling. See, remember that? Maybe every now and then it's still there. When people are in love, they go around singing a lot. When they're in love, they're excited. When they're in love, they're happy. Now, if we're in love with God, this is what He wants. This is what He likes. He likes psalms. This is sermon number two. My wife likes the color red. She dresses in red almost every time. If I want to get her something, I get her something red. I've studied her and I know what she likes. And so I want to please her. God likes psalms. He's your husband. Jesus is your husband. He likes psalms. So I encourage you, when you eat, drink, and are merry, to use the psalms in your merriment more. As much as possible. I don't know of any churches that do a good job with this. Every church in America today, Presbyterian, Episcopal, charismatic, post-charismatic, whatever, all those kinds of churches are in the same boat of not being used to singing Bible passages. But folks, our forefathers did it, and we're no dumber than they were. They could do it when they were merry. They sang them with a lot of rhythm and with a lot of enthusiasm, clapping their hands and stomping their feet. Calvin's Psalms, you know Calvin, that predestination guy? The psalms that he wrote were called Geneva Jigs because they were so rhythmical. It gives you an idea of a project that you can have. When I come back here again, I expect to... No. But you see, Ecclesiastes tells us that life is tough. And we can go through in America with our prosperity and not face that very often. And when you do, it is an amazing thing, isn't it? All of a sudden you realize that you have slidden down into a pit in your life. Or all of a sudden God broadsides you with something. And then this is real. And folks, the Psalms were written for people who are encountering that kind of reality. And so when we eat, drink, and are merry, let me encourage you to work the psalms more into your worship privately and corporately. Why are we here today? It's because in the midst of life, in the midst of all the pain, suffering, and meaninglessness that so often afflicts us, God has given us the gift of eating and drinking and making merry. And there is nothing better than that. There is nothing better.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.